Hey, this is Sayyam Botani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science, a podcast for data science enthusiasts where I interview practitioners, researchers and cagglers about their journey, experience and talk all things about data science. Welcome to another episode in the Chai Time Data Science Show. In this episode, I'm joined by someone who is helping create the future machine learning heroes, Edward Harris, CEO of Sharpest Minds. Edward has a background in physics with a PhD degree from University of Toronto. In this interview, we talk about their company, Sharpest Minds, which offers a mentorship platform for data science and machine learning based on an IC agreement. Uh, their experience in Y Combinator, they're from the Y Combinator batch of uh, winter 2018, and many things about building a portfolio and how to get hired in the field of data science. Enjoy the show. Hello, Edward. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me today. Hey, Sanyam. Thanks so much for having me. Sure thing. So I, I, I'm a fan of the work being done at Sharpest Minds, but for the audience, I guess the name sort of gives it away, but could you tell us what uh, Sharpest Minds is? Yeah, so we are a mentorship program for data science and machine learning based on income share agreements. So the way it works is that a mentor will work with you on a project <laughs> for free, upfront in exchange for a percentage of your first year of salary if you're hired. And then after you finish the project, Sharpest Minds itself and your mentor will help you with preparing your resume, uh, introductions to hiring partners, preparing for interviews, all of the regular job prep stuff that you'd expect. Gotcha. And you mentioned if so, uh, it's, it only happens if the assumingly the mentees and they do get hired a lot. I've been following that on Twitter. Yes, yes, uh, they are getting hired a lot, especially recently as, uh, as all of our processes have improved a lot. And uh, that's right. So they don't pay anything until they are hired. Got it. Uh, and I think you have a very interesting team. So I think you have about 66% dropouts on your founding team. Could you tell us more about uh, that? Yeah, so technically, uh, my brother and I are the, the two co-founders and uh, Russell is our CTO joined uh, shortly after. And uh, yeah, so Jeremy, my brother, and Russell, our CTO, are both PhD dropouts. Uh, <laughs> and I am kind of the, the ugly duckling who finished his PhD uh, and went all the way through. Got it. And uh, could you tell us, like, how did you decide on the founding team, uh, you and your brother? And I guess Russell was a software dev on the team and later he joined as a CTO. So how did you pick your founding team? Yeah, so the way we picked our founding team is that we were already brothers. So we already knew that we could work together very well. And we had had uh, experience teaching together since we were teens, actually. So we knew, uh, you know, we had some, some experience uh, teaching and, and training people in, in various ways and capacities. And we'd started other things together, little businesses, you know, uh, nonprofits, things like that. So we knew that we could work together without, you know, punching each other in the face too much. So that was very nice. Um, Russell was actually, uh, was actually an addition from, so before we had 
sharpest minds as it currently is, mm-hmm. we were doing something pretty different. This is when we just, just first started. Yep. And what we were doing then was we were taking university students, like uh, graduate students. Fresh and grad. Yeah, uh, no, actual graduate students, like still in school. Okay. And uh, getting them to work on data science projects mm-hmm. uh, or companies who would then hire them after they graduated. So it was a little bit of a convoluted, uh, complicated idea, but it got some interest and, and some good stuff came out of it. And one of the things that came out of it was Russell himself. So he, Russell, was doing his PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, he was actually doing his PhD in the same building that I was doing my PhD in. <laughs> okay. um, we started this thing and I uh, went to the building to try to recruit some students and Russell was one of them. And he was mm-hmm. at the time told me like he's thinking about dropping out, didn't really like his PhD. He was kind of, you know, uh, bummed out about it. Uh, so on a lark, he kind of joined our, uh, our, our program as it was back then. Okay. And uh, we got him a, a job, like a remote job with a robotics company that was really cool. Uh, he was really awesome about him is he had not written basically a line of code in his life before then. Like he'd he'd written MATLAB or something. Um, And he started working with them and he actually managed to write a a database management system for the robots. And then Mm -hmm. after that, uh, they kind of dipsy doodle around like, do we want to hire him full time after? Maybe, maybe not. And at the time it was like beginning of summer and we figured like we'd take a chance on uh, bringing on someone on an internship. We were like, why don't you, why don't you come on board, Russell? And okay. he learned so quickly that we just ended up uh, bringing him on uh, as, as a full-time person. And now he's the CTO. I, I follow him on Twitter and his blog. So that's definitely amazing. I think he must have been an amazing addition to the team for sure. He is uh, one of the most dedicated, self-improving people that you will ever encounter. Um, and his, his personal website uh, kind of, uh, speaks to that like he he talks about you know how uh do i make myself a morning person get up in the morning yeah. how do i uh, get myself to work out every day like all these little things you can do to improve and there's, there's a nerdiness to to the blog post that he writes as well so that's pretty amazing i don't think i've come across such such a style ever oh he's a huge nerd yeah <laughs> got it and uh, to talk about the other part of your founding team, the 33% that isn't a dropout. Could you tell us what got you interested in data science at first and was it doing your PhD or after it ended? Yeah, totally. So I did do my PhD. Uh, I, I say this quite a bit, but I now looking back, I'm like, I kind of regret uh, taking it all the way. Uh, I think that okay. uh, there's, there's value to doing it, but uh, in terms of opportunity cost, if you're starting a PhD now, unless you're absolutely 100% certain you want to do it, uh, I would actually say, you know, maybe don't do it or think think twice before doing it. Uh, what what ended up happening? Yeah. Jeremy has a really nice post about it. So he talks about if that tech will be important after that amount of period and other important factors. So that's one great factor to consider, I think. Yeah, that's the thing. So when you do a PhD, you're aiming yourself in a particular direction and you're going to go down that direction for five years, like rain or shine, boom or bust. The yep. problem is the world changes faster than a five-year timescale. So you can end up just having been aimed in the wrong direction for all of that time. and You have to go back and learn new stuff. <laughs> and uh, what made you pick uh, data science during your PhD? 
I was actually, uh, I did my PhD in physics actually. And yeah. because at the time there wasn't, when I started, there wasn't really such a thing as data science. And so okay. it was only towards the end that we, that I started doing some machine learning and, and probability type stuff uh, that then kind of coupled me over into data science. Got it. Uh, do you think like you went to University of Toronto, did the godfather of AI presence have, have an influence on you or? Um, not, not so much at the time, actually. Uh, I, I only really got into it like towards the end of my PhD, but a kind of funny story, our office is right across the, the street from his. And so <laughs> I'll bump into him once every couple of weeks when he's getting coffee in the morning. So that's kind of funny. Interesting. And uh, what made you pick the path of like doing a startup instead of working in a job scenario? And why was this important to you? Yeah, always wanted to uh, to, have, to start a company. Um, just to, like looking back, like obviously had no clue what I was doing back when we, when we first started it. But um, it was always something I wanted to do. And looking back, more school is just a way of pushing off the inevitable. But the time had come <laughs> and we did. Gotcha. And could you tell us about your current role? So how does the day in, in, uh, in the life of a CEO look like and what parts of the operations you handle currently? Well, uh, good question. What is my day-to-day? -day? Uh, so my day-to-day -day is, um, the, so everyone kind of says like uh, CEO is like chief email officer and that is very much the case. Um, mm -hmm. Probably half, uh, Half-ish, approximately, of my day is spent in emails and in uh, and, and calls and stuff. Uh, operationally, I handle many of the mentor interviews still, so I still personally okay. interview uh, practically every mentor that comes through uh, mm -hmm. into our system and make sure they're good. Um, in addition to which, I'm like I deliberately uh, set a number of calls every week with people who are at various stages in our system. So mentors who were on their first mentees, mentees who are experienced in the system, people who are just starting out, trying to find- so people, people on both sides, mentors and mentees. People on both sides, exactly, exactly. And the idea behind that is we're changing our, uh, we're changing stuff like still very quickly, right? Like we're improving, improving things very fast. Yeah. Uh, we need to keep our finger like, we need to keep our, our ear to the ground on what are people thinking? What's good? What's bad? Like what, what sucks? What do we need to improve? And every week something changes. So we need to constantly be aware of, okay, what did this change do to how people are thinking and perceiving about not just like our app or our, you know, yeah. uh, community or whatever, but each other uh, as well. So have to be like in, in my head, I have to hold the points of view of like, maybe four or five different actors or personas that, that all have a stake <laughs> in how well we structure ourselves. So this is a very important component of my day. Okay. Uh, I think Jeremy also talks about, about this in one of his posts that it's a constant shift in the peak of the startup space. So you're always like looking for that point. Yeah. You, you cannot, you cannot take your eyes off the road. Uh, you just <laughs> cannot do that. It's like in a car, you know, you don't look away for more than two seconds or you're at risk of crash. Like it's the same here. You can't, you can't stop talking to your users for any important length of time, or you just start building your way off a cliff. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, you'd been working on the company for two years uh, before you got incubated into Y Combinator. So could you tell us like 
how was your y combinator experience and how did that change your path or affect your path once you in that yeah so yc was a very intense experience uh it was the 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 main thing about it was the high while you were in it was how much pressure there was on you uh, yeah. to get good results and get good numbers for demo day etc that that was the main thing that's the main thing you feel when you're in it yeah. after you've been through it and you have a bit of distance you get to step back and think like okay what are all the other valuable things that happened to you during this experience and it's it was only really for us uh, mm-hmm. after we had a couple of months you know after going through the program itself that we started to realize like all of the benefits of the program uh, the community that that came from it the yeah. The, 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 the advice from the partners, which we still get and saves our bacon to this day <laughs> uh, and still, and still does like really uh, amazing stuff. Like, and, and you really, you start to perceive the value after you go through the program, but while you're in the program, the main thing that you're experiencing is like, Oh shit, everything is on fire and everything is so <laughs> difficult. And there, you know, there's a lot like basically there is a lot of pressure to get stuff done, which is good because it permanently resets your mind and your pace forever afterwards. And uh, I think you had, like you mentioned your earlier uh, model. So did the pivot happen for you after the YC experience or how did that pivot happen for you? We did indeed change our direction after going through YC. So during YC, we were, uh, doing a bit of a recruitment type company where we would charge companies once candidates were placed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that went fine. Like it went okay. Uh, yeah. But after YC, uh, after you go through an experience of that level of intensity, another good thing about it is that it forces you to afterwards, like take, take a step back and go, okay, we've been through this. Yeah. Is this what we want to be working on and doing? for the next 10 years? Do we want to be building this for the next decade of our lives? Like huge commitment. And the answer we came up with was, well, we always started by building this for the students. Like that was always our original goal. Mm -hmm. But by charging companies, what's essentially happening is that the companies become our customers. So the companies, and and that does a bunch of stuff to you. Like, because because your profit center comes from the specific companies that have an agreement with you, yeah, you have to uh, you have to basically encourage your students not to apply to companies that don't have an agreement with you. So that kind of <laughs> restricts their options. Yeah. And so, in a way, we were not serving the interests of our students, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what we came to realize. We're like, we don't really want to be doing this for you know another. 10 and your years. vision was still like to help basically the students get better opportunities that was that was always the driving force behind what we were doing but what we were doing at the time didn't quite serve that as well as we thought and so this change came about because we wanted to be able to uh two things make the students our customers number one so that we would be serving them and number two not charge them up front so that our company would not be driven by sales but would be driven by placements and so that was very important because this is the outcome that students care most about. They don't care about 
getting into your program for getting into your program. They care about what's going to happen after. Are, are they going to get placed? Are they going to be successful yeah. in their own measure? Definitely. I wish like every school someday inculcates this into their uh, setup. But uh, I think Lambda School is one of the places where this, this is happening. Uh, do you know like if there are any other companies following such a model and like how can one not just emulate your model? So how is your company different? Yeah, so there are a number of ISA-powered companies out there. I think Lambda was the one that more or less showed that you can make a remote ISA program work and that most barriers, uh, most really hard barriers to scale can be brought down through a model like this. And there are a number of uh, of ISA-type companies in various niches that have sprung up in the wake of them. Um, what, we, what, is, what is maybe interesting about us is that we actually, uh, we don't mind, uh, we don't mind people who have ISA-powered companies because we can actually be a service layer for those companies. In fact, there are already a couple of ISA-powered companies that are operating on top of us. Um, there are companies like essentially schools that are using us uh, for placement layer and to, to juice and improve their, their own communities. In other words, you, you can, it, it, we actually are a thing that makes it easier to start an ISA school. Um, you, because the, the, the thing about an ISA program is that uh, somebody has to own every layer of, what, yeah. of, what, of, the, of the journey, right? Or it just doesn't work. Makes sense. Uh, yeah, if you have great filtering and, and great training, but mm -hmm. you just don't have placements, like everyone has terrible resumes and like <laughs> nobody, nobody knows that interview, like you're just going to fail really badly because you can't, it's like, it's like Jenga, right? Like you can't take what it's, it's not exactly like Jenga. You, you take a brick out and like mm -hmm. the whole thing falls apart. And so that means that it's easy to start an ISA powered school but it's hard to successfully start one. And you yeah. don't find out that you failed until quite a while after and people just aren't getting hired. Hmm. Whereas it's much easier if you're someone who just loves to teach, to yeah. come to us, teach through us, and you don't need to worry about the other stuff, like the interviews and the resumes and the placements. If you just do a really great job of teaching and attracting good students to you, that's all, that's literally all you need to do. We can handle the rest. So we don't Sorry. mind being ISA schools out there because they, in a way, are actually uh, a, a constituency that we serve. Got it. And because you're also like very hands down in, in the process, you handle, as you mentioned, like the hiring sort of things like resumes and other stuff. That's right. Exactly. That's what we, the, the company does for, uh, for mentors and schools. Yeah. Got it. And uh, I know you have many great success stories, but before you get to that, could you like tell us uh, what's the business model? How does it scale uh, for your target quote unquote users and future plans for your uh, company? Sure. So uh, yeah, Sharp as Minds makes money the same way that mentors do. Uh, we don't take any money up front, but we charge a percent of first year salary when the student gets hired. So mm -hmm. when the mentor makes money, we make money when the student, the mentee makes money, we make money. So we align interest that way. The way that this 
uh, scales up. So this is, I mean, it's, it's actually a, already a fairly uh, scalable model operationally. Um, mentors, because it's a marketplace, right? Like the services are delivered by a side of the marketplace. So as long as we have enough mentors in the system, we can continue to serve our users uh, pretty much indefinitely. Um, obviously, there needs to be someone to do the resume review and a few of the other things, but yeah, that's... that's that's what I was getting to because like you handle that portion. So how does that scale for you? Do you, do you bring more, more people on board? Do you plan yeah. to? Or, okay. Yeah. So it's possible. <clears throat> that's right. So uh, it, it's, you need a human person ultimately to review this sort of thing, but there are also ways of making it very efficient. A lot of people make mostly the same kinds of mistakes on their resumes, especially the first time around. And so there are ways of building software to really speed up the process, but keep it very personal. Um, and there's similar stuff that you can do uh, across everything else. Um, generally speaking, like in terms of expanding, yeah, we are interested uh, in, uh, in, in expanding geographically and, uh, and, and along, across different domains. This is obviously what we're building can serve ISA type schools across all domains, right? Like there is the fact that we're doing data science and machine learning now, cool, it's focused, but eventually this can truly this can serve everything. Um, yep. But we just want to make sure that things are uh, working like marvelously well and hmm. to a point where we're comfortable adding on a bunch of stuff before we, uh, before we move on. To so quality over quantity for now. Exactly. Exactly. We want to make sure that it's absolutely mind-blowingly excellent and then we can expand Could you it. Maybe tell us like, is India on the radar when, when you plan to like come to India for, for the program? <laughs> I I hear this probably uh, two or three times a day, but yes, wow, okay. we do plan on making it out to India. Uh, there are uh, there are a few things in the way, and a few things we need to do first. The uh, the difference in in currencies and salaries is something that we need to uh, adjust for. Probably yeah. that means we'll need to start by recruiting a bunch of local mentors first uh, in order to actually serve the region mm. and plan is probably to go for the UK and Europe before then, but there's nothing firm yet. Most okay. likely once we develop a playbook to expand in a new region, it'll be faster to expand from that point. Got it. But good to know that India is there on, on the... Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We go where, where people ask us to go. Yeah. Got it. And I think you recently tweeted out that one mentee gets hired every three days. So that's obviously pretty amazing. Could you maybe share a few like one would be difficult, but maybe a few success stories that you're very proud of. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so yeah, it's it's about one one is one person is getting hired every three days now. Although that's uh, increasing a little bit recently, and and it's changing. Wow. And uh, yeah, but but yeah, about one every three days, more or less. Uh, in terms of specific success stories, uh, there there is the the best success stories are the ones that teach you something, hmm. and. Usually they teach you something because the person who drove the success had a, an attitude where they would not compromise on getting what they wanted. And it's people who have this attitude that really do interesting things. So the story that I'm at the moment that I'm most inspired by is there's a guy called Sue and he was really interested in getting hired uh, in a fashion company. So basically being a data scientist for a fashion company. 
he somehow managed to get an interview with the VP of engineering of a major fashion company uh, okay. in Canada, I think uh, Montreal, Toronto, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he was not going to let this one go. <laughs> so what he did is he spent three weeks uh, with our help making a slideshow presentation of all okay. of the ways in which he was going to improve this company's website and recommender system on their website. Okay. So I still remember it. One of the things that the website was missing was mm -hmm. it had this recommender that would say people who bought this also bought like, you know, people like you also bought this, yeah. but because it was a fashion company, that's not quite what people wanted. What people wanted yeah. was complete the outfit. So like you have a blue t-shirt, what goes well with a blue t-shirt? It's not about what did people like you also buy. It's a little bit of a different problem. So That's he identified this difference. Yeah. I don't think so like many, many fashion, uh, EE fashion websites don't do this. I think not, not, not any that comes to my mind. Many do many, uh, some, some don't definitely some don't. Um, mm -hmm. he found their competitor's website and pointed to it and said, look, they're doing it. You should do it. <laughs> So he had this meeting with this VP of engineering, gave this presentation, totally unexpected. She was blown away. Mm -hmm. And the next week, uh, the email newsletter for this fashion company included a complete the outfit in it, which is kind of hilarious. Like they, they immediately like took his idea and, and started testing it. So it was really cool. Mm -hmm. And then the week after that, he was giving the same presentation to their CEO and the best part was, so he got hired by them, of course, but the company actually rearranged their hiring schedule and moved up their hiring schedule to hire a data scientist so that they could get him on board. And a story like that is to me the most inspiring story ever because you've taken something that is a bit of a lottery, right? Like the get, applying for jobs, it's, it's like a, it's very much of a lottery. It's uncertain whether you have one outcome or another. Yeah. And you've turned it into a game that's deterministic where <laughs> you've done so much, you've put yourself so far above the competition yeah. that you've nearly guaranteed the outcome for yourself. And only someone who's not willing to compromise on what they want could see that far into what they need to do to obtain and get their goal. Definitely. So that's the story that most inspires me um, recently from Correct. what has happened with our students. And it's something that we now teach our students. Um, hmm. If you really want to go for it, yep. this works. We've seen this works. <laughs> it's also about like true raw passion, as you said. So it, uh, you also mentioned this as a quote unquote cold start problem. I'll have that linked in the description, but for a few people like me who maybe don't have a motivate, motivating idea or like they they're not sure what they want to do like what do you suggest like what's a great way to like maybe catch interest of the hiring people or build something interesting how to find that idea or how to build your portfolio for that case yes yeah, so the cold star problem is i guess the the medium post i wrote about how to build your machine learning portfolio and yeah. the uh so you're asking you're asking what should i do if i don't have an idea yeah. More or less. Okay. So what, what should I do if I don't have an idea? If you don't have an idea, um, it depends on where you're at. So if you wanted, if you want to, if you don't have an idea and you're just trying to 
like build. You just want to build something to learn. Don't sweat it too much. You know, find a data set on Kaggle to mess around and learn with. That's cool. But at some point, you're going to want to do a project that you can show off you know, yeah. on your resume or on wherever or talk about or something. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of projects are, they have to be special. They have to be special in that they have to stand out in some way that's obvious. The key for them is they should be, A, they should be a lot of work, yeah. but B, they should be the kind of work that's particularly easy to verify and check. Hmm. So not only do you have to do a lot of work, but you have to do a lot of work in such a way that I, who is interviewing you, can tell at a glance that you've done a lot of work. And that's why one of the things that we advise for these kinds of projects is when possible or realistic, you should collect the data yourself yeah. or like clean it or otherwise yourself. Because <laughs> then saying, you know, one example from there was like someone taped their phone to a shopping cart and went around <laughs> like driving a grocery store to take yeah. images of the shelves. That's obvious and easily checkable work. That's work that is easy to check. So yeah. These are the principles behind it. How to come up with an idea, um, begin with your own interests. Because this kind of thing tends to be a lot of work, yeah. you, want to, like, you want to be aiming yourself in a direction where you can stand to work pretty hard for a pretty long time. And so begin with an area that you are personally interested in. If you're interested in, you know, robots or hardware like that's amazing like build a robot and put an algorithm in it to get it to do something like that's really cool if yeah. you're interested in painting then okay like you could depending on how sophisticated you want to get you can either try to classify some paintings from the great masters or try to create uh like generate paintings like they're in the style of of one guy or another uh if you're into you know cars um like design a car using machine learning. That's probably almost possible using GANs. And if yep. it's not possible, the pictures will be hilarious. So just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. start from your own interests, something that you want to do yourself. Mm -hmm. And not only will you have the motivation to do it and carry it through the end, but also you will have true interest and genuine passion when you talk yep. about it. And that is as important as the work itself. Got it. So I think like not many people preach about this because model.fit is what's sexy for machine learning folks, but not many people think about data pre-processing and all. So it's also, I guess, as you mentioned about how do you pitch this to your boss before you're hired? That's exactly right. Remember that, yeah, you know about model.fit, but everyone knows about model.fit <laughs> and the interviewer knows about model.fit. So like, eh, it doesn't really differentiate you. It's like pretty, in, you know, in a year, it's going to be the hello world of data science. So, yep. you know, you don't write hello world to get an interview and, and model.fit is not the thing you show off when you're, right. uh, but, but another uh, important aspect is you're, you're, you're right. Like make it visual, uh, making something that's visual and it's okay if you're, you know, you create an interface and it's not the most beautiful thing in the world, but having an interface is, is very, very important. Uh, it's not like, it's no good if you have 10,000 lines of code and an incredibly sophisticated backend algorithm that is like AGI or, or whatever insane thing you've built. 
if all you can show at a moment's notice is a bunch of lines of code. I don't have the time or the mental energy to look at your code because <laughs> it's not worth my effort to, to like read your code and confirm that you're good or not. Instead, if you show me something really simple that I can interact with, then we have something where I can take a look and it's, it's stimulating, it's exciting. Yep. I can evaluate for myself how good it is. This is the way of getting your foot in the door in an interaction, it's having something visible. And that takes work up front, but it's 100% worth the work. It's, it's about that MVP that a business person would be interested in and not a thing that you go to your hackathon and talk to your nerd friends about and they might be interested in. That's exactly right. You know, you're talking about like an MVP. That's exactly what it is. It's an MVP, uh, an MVP of yourself as the product. Yeah. Got it. And I know you have many great mentors helping the students. So uh, I'm also curious to know about the mentor community. What sort of people do you have and uh, how do you uh, invite them to join Sharpest Minds as mentors? Good question. So we have, uh, gosh, I have no idea now, probably close to 200 mentors now wow. uh, in the system. Yeah, I, I, I've stopped counting at <laughs> point. We get around uh 10 applying every week, something like that these days. So like, uh, yeah. And so how we, many mentors for just for reference? How oh, many mentors? Mentees, sorry. How many mentees? Uh, so active in the system, we have about 130 or so, something like that. Uh, and yeah, like, uh, but, but many have graduated and there are a few that are coming on board. And so it's, you know, it's constantly more being added and more, more graduating away. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So uh, about the mentor community, could you tell us more like what sort of mentors do you have and their background? Uh, it's, it's a wide variety of folks. So we do require that mentors have at least one year of work experience in data science, machine learning in production before they can join or apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, let's see, we have mentors from just all kinds of companies. Uh, it's, it's startups, giant companies like uh, Facebook, Airbnb, like every, all the, all the big folks um, that you'd imagine. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, interesting, specific, interesting people. So the former head of data at Pebble, uh, the watch company is a mentor. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the head of actually, believe it or not, the the head of uh, well, the head of machine learning strategy for all of Uber is also a mentor. Okay. Uh, uh, head of uh, ML for customer products at Instacart is a mentor. Um, the director of the stats program at Carnegie Mellon is a mentor. Um, well, so there are a lot of folks on the system who are like, okay, like they are actually like top of their field, and uh, basically you can't get any, any higher in the field more <laughs> um, unless you're Jeff Hinton himself. Uh, so certainly some, some heavy hitting folks there, uh, but the, the community itself is really great. One of the, the nicest things actually about the way this program is built <laughs> is if you imagine the kinds of people who would apply to this program to be mentors, right? Yeah. The deal that we offer it's not obvious that anyone in the world would take this deal. Hmm. The deal is 
you bet on someone, you invest your professional time and your valuable energy into a person that you have interviewed, but really like you don't know, know them. Yep. And you work with them for many weeks, like, you know, months, two, three months can be as long as six months. Mm -hmm. And then if they get hired, then you make, you, you make your money. So yep. it's not clear when we started, it wasn't clear that there was anyone in the world who was <laughs> going to take this deal like this. But yeah. it turns out that there are 200 people who will. And the best part is the kinds of people who will take a deal like this are the kinds of people who are relationship driven. They're not driven by transaction or like pay me now or, or any kind of, uh, you know, immediate gains. They're long-term focused people who care about building relationships with their students in the long run. And so that means they tend to be really, really thoughtful, nice, considerate, and competent people. And so it's my incredible good fortune to be lucky enough to be interviewing on average, many people like that every day. So they're, it's, it's my favorite, one of my favorite parts of the job is that I very fortunately get to interview these people who have been attracted by this offer. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's, it's one of the highlights of my day of getting to talk to new mentors who are coming on board because we consistently find that they are competent and, and nice. And, and that's right. like, that's the start. And it's also because like, it also helps the model because these people are, as you said, relation, relationship driven. So they really invest into the mentees also. Exactly. Yo, exactly. That's right. Yeah. That, that is, that's what we observe as well. It's the um, incentives really do drive the outcomes, but we didn't even get how much that would be true until we started to, until we started. Gotcha. And uh, you mentioned these, uh, like after, let's say a mentee gets paired with a the mentor, they work on a project for a couple of months, you said two to six. So what, what kind of projects or ideas do they work on uh, during this period? And how does, how transformative is that for them? Good question. So the, uh, the article that I wrote, uh, Cold Star Problem, probably gives you a nice, uh, you know, little, little examples of projects like this, like the grocery store project. Uh, yeah. and I guess detecting uh, pilots were unconscious, for example, is another one. Uh, but it's, it's projects like that. The, the idea is that they should be, uh, you know, like, like we talked about, they should be visual. They should involve obvious degrees of work, mm -hmm. not necessarily always, I built a really sophisticated model because that doesn't differentiate you so much these days, but I collected data in a really cool way or I presented my data in a really cool way, something like that. Yeah. Uh, how transformative is it for them? So very frequently we have folks like, so there are uh, things that are table stakes in industry and are just assumed that you know in industry that aren't taught in school. Um, one example is Git. So Git, you and I both know Git. It's what you use to build software in industry, full stop. Like, obviously, everyone in industry knows Git. But in schools, they, generally speaking, don't teach it. And I've had a conversation with a university professor, like, last week, where I made this exact point to him. And he said, 
actually, I don't know Git. And Honestly, I was like, I'm sadly not even surprised by that. I can confirm that that is still the case. I'm fresh out of college for the listeners. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and I mean, you'll pick it up. It's not incredibly complicated or whatever, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's more than trivial and it takes some doing. It's precisely the sort of thing that ought to be taught in schools, but isn't. And so, and there are a number of things like this. There's a difference between writing code to turn in an assignment or even code to run a research project by yourself mm-hmm. and code that is designed to be read rewritten and maintained by not just other human beings who may have never met you, but also by future you, nine months of the future, who completely has forgotten everything about what you wrote nine months ago, and you're like, what did I even do here? And so there are practices that one can and should develop in order to do this that, again, are taught now unevenly in the workforce, that uh, that it's emphasized in our program so basically like the mentors help them to get into the mind state of uh industrial uh, scenario that's that's the idea exactly gotcha and uh like for for the people who are not in sharpest minds i believe we're in a situation that there are plenty of materials online so you can find most of the good courses even from places like stanford so do you think these are good enough for one to get hired and for example, if like one who's really passionate follows them, how do you stand out from the crowd after just doing these courses? For a particular kind of person, these kinds of courses may be good enough. Um, the completion rate for a MOOC is generally very low. Yeah, uh, It's single digit percentage points, I believe. Like, yeah. Very, very low. Um, MOOCs and online courses are like most books in that most books are purchased aspirationally. They're purchased, <laughs> they're purchased because I want to be, I want to see myself as the sort of person who might one day read this book or take this course or do this. Yeah. Generally speaking, they are not actually like followed through on. Like most people who start something don't finish it. Like you, you know, you make a New Year's That's resolution, right. have some other immediate driving force that gets you started, and then you kind of after chapter one, you go like, "Well, I have the Netflix." Yeah, <laughs> life happens. So this is like this is most of the human condition, and it's the reason why human beings were not meant to be by themselves particularly not in a challenging endeavor. Um, Human to human support is what we, most of us, not all of us, but 90 whatever percent of us are wired to respond to. And so that is one of the core ideas behind our program. It's not, and it's not just like, oh, there's another person kind of helping me out. It's like, oh, I have a call with my mentor on Sunday night and I told my mentor I would get this done by Sunday night. Yeah. Uh, exactly. It's accountability. Accountability to the mentor. Accountability to you know fellow students. Mm. Um, all that's all of that sort of thing. This is 
it's one of those squishy things, right? You're like, oh, well, that can't be worth that much. But when you actually measure people's behavior of you do it alone or you do it without this, what you find is that the biggest point of, uh, of, of value application that you can get, like the biggest single piece of value you can add is that community and that human to human touch. So yep. there are some individuals who are just, you know, we, it's, who are wired in such a way that they can just drive themselves to completion by themselves. Um, and that's great. That's amazing. The internet is their playground, but they, they form only a small, uh, tiny percentage of the population. And you shouldn't be ashamed if you're not one of them because most of us aren't like yeah. 90 plus percent of us aren't. And so what we're building is for the 90 plus percent of people who sincerely want the outcome, but have trouble motivating themselves step by step. And also don't want to be led by blind alleys. Cause one of the issues is there's so much content out there, right? There's like a billion different things. What do I start with? What do I learn? What's the best resource for NLP and having someone who is an expert and who knows your particular context helps you save another 90% of your time that you would spend reading the wrong. <laughs> And I call it deal. the infinite learning loop where you keep going from one course to another because you like you and they market it so well that you feel, Hey, I need to know this. Okay. This course looks good. Let me sign up for that. Yes. Yes. You need uh, someone to sort and sift through for you. And for now that's a person. <laughs> okay. Um, before we conclude, uh, what would be your best advice to someone who can't currently join Sharpest Minds? I think you still just in the U S and Canada. So, and what suggestions do you have for them to get a break into the field? If you, uh, if you can't access us and want to break into the field of data science, um, you can kind of try to create yourself uh, a surrogate for all of the stuff that I was mentioning before. So it's a, it's a bit of an imperfect solution, but uh, if you live in an urban area that's pretty big, most likely there will be some form of machine learning meetups in your area. Yeah. This is a good place to begin. So I think you're in Mumbai, right, Sanyam? Uh, I moved back to my hometown. So it's oh, you moved back. Oh, you're, you're in a hometown. Okay. If you were in Mumbai, the advice I would give you is uh, almost certainly there's, you know, a ton of meetups in Mumbai on, on machine learning because there's a bunch of, you know, giant yeah. international companies there. So uh, go to those meetups as, as regularly as you can. And, just start to make a few friends that you can be accountable to for your learning. Uh, just tell them I'm going to do this and like get it done by a certain amount of time. A variant of this, which is more effective if you're comfortable in social media is learning in public. So what you can do is if you have a Twitter account and any non-trivial number of followers, even if it's just your family, it sounds, most of these techniques sound silly, by the way, but when you actually start doing them, you'll find they, they start to work, but you post like, I'm going to like, by this Sunday, I will have gotten through like this, or yeah. I will, have, I will have done this goal. And then you post your goal on Sunday and whether you've accomplished it or not. The point is when there aren't eyes on us, most human beings default to their defaults. Right? <laughs> Yeah. We, yeah, we default to laziness. We default to all of the things of like lying in your couch on your underwear or whatever it is. Right. We default. Yep. yep. Uh, 
And the way that we avoid those kinds of defaults is when there are eyes on us and other people looking. So we must look for ways of making that happen for ourselves. And surprisingly, like in my experience, I did tweet this out in the beginning of, of the year that I want to be good on Kaggle and people are actually supportive if, if you're honest about it, that, Hey, I'm not good at this. That was my tweet actually. And I want to get better at Kaggle. And a lot of people did say good luck. Yes. Uh, you, in positioning yourself like this, you are being the person that other people sort of wish they could be. And so they can live vicariously through you to an extent. So use that, use it. I also want to drop a plug. Like if you don't have a physical meetup, so I, I conduct a faster day meetup online every week. Also hoping to start a PyTorch one. Those also sort of keep you lazy enough, but yet accountable enough. So these these are popping up a lot more now, I guess, and that's I think one of one of another ways like to meet people and still be able to be comfortable at your home. That's exactly right. Yeah, if you if you can do online meetups, and there are increasingly meetups that happen online through Zoom or whatever. Yeah. Yep. All right. It was really nice to have you on the show. Uh, before we end the call, uh, what would be the best platforms to follow you and uh, Sharpest Minds? Oh yeah, so uh, definitely follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm uh, Neutrons Neurons. I guess you you'll probably type this out into the uh, the yep. post. But uh, uh, also follow Sharpest Minds. We'll announce when we you know expand in other countries and do interesting things. So uh, Sharpest Minds AI is the Twitter handle for that. And let me see. Uh, also, I I do write on Medium, and I am planning on posting a giant series of articles there before too too long on how to get hired and, and things like that. So, uh, so that sounds very exciting as well. Yeah. I also want to say that I'm a huge fan of the complete founding team. So I'll also have their, uh, uh, profiles linked in the description, please. If you have yes. the time, read all of the blogs by Jeremy and Russell also. So those are also pretty great. Yes, definitely that. follow Jeremy's Medium account, Twitter, and uh, Russell's Twitter, and his personal website, RussellPolari.com, which has all of those self-motivational tips that I was talking about in the yeah. beginning. All right. Uh, thanks so much again for joining me today, Edward. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.